this is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in His power and love even now as you listen. so much. Beautiful. We'll open your Bibles this morning to the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 11, and uh, we're going to look at Mark 11:27 through 12:27 this morning as we keep uh, walking through Mark's Gospel. And so I'm going to cover almost all of this text today. We're going to walk through it, read through it carefully as we go along, and so I'm not going to read it before the message, but go ahead and just turn to it. Mark 11:27. this is just a beautiful portrait of Jesus, the beloved Son. And before we look at the text together, let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for just your presence in our service already. Thanks for that beautiful song that just talks about the reconciliation that you have provided for us through Christ, that even when we were enemies and running from you, that you, you loved us still, and you died for us, and you rose for us, and you reconciled us to yourself. Thank you for the beautiful picture of new life in Christ that we have seen in baptism that through Jesus, through a risen Savior, that there is the forgiveness of sins, the old is gone, buried, the new has come. We are raised to walk in newness of life. And we want to know Jesus even more. And we pray that as we look at this passage of Scripture, that you would just show us a, a clear portrait of the Beloved Son. Jesus, for it's in his name that we pray. Amen. I'll never forget the first time that I saw really high-level tennis players hitting the ball live. It's one thing to see it on TV, but to see it up close. And I was amazed with how hard these guys served. And uh, these weren't even pros. They were high-level Division I college players. But I was like, you know, if I could return these serves at all, they would be pretty weak returns. Well, think about the pros. They can serve the ball like 160 miles an hour. But just imagine this. Imagine a, a pro tennis player serving the ball 160 miles an hour, and imagine a guy who could return it at twice that speed. So the ball is coming at him at 160 miles an hour, and he can return it at 320 miles an hour. Well, that's kind of what we see happening in the text that we're going to look at today. Because what we're going to see in this text is that the, the religious leaders, the religious pros, are coming at Jesus with their hardest serves. And what we're going to see is that Jesus is returning their serves at twice the speed. In fact, the ball is coming back at them so hard, so fast, that they can't even see it, let alone return it. And we see this in several exchanges in this text. And the first one really begins 
when Jesus receives a question about authority. And so let's take a look at our, our Bibles or t direct your attention to the screen. To Mark 11:27 and 28. The Bible says, And they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things, or who gave you this authority to do them? In other words, these religious leaders are asking Jesus, Who do you think you are? And that's a very relevant question, because you see, if Jesus was just a mere man, and he was saying the things that he was saying, making the claims that he was making, that would be a problem. As C.S. Lewis recognizes in his classic book, Mere Christianity, where he says this, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. And so, what vindicates every claim that Jesus made, everything that he ever said about himself, is his resurrection. If Jesus rose from the dead, then we better pay attention to everything that he said. And if he did not rise from the dead, then why pay attention to anything that he said? Everything hinges on the resurrection of Christ. And the evidence for his resurrection is simply overwhelming. I would commend to you, if you've never read at least Strobel's book, The Case for Christ, which I think is going to soon be a movie uh, coming up in April, but Strobel does a great job in this book of, of showing just, just the overwhelming evidence for the truth of the resurrection of Jesus, there is more evidence for his resurrection than for historical events that we take for granted as true every day. In fact, if someone rejects the resurrection of Christ, they, they are not doing so on the basis of evidence. And they should have the, the, the intellectual credibility to admit that they're not they're not rejecting his resurrection on the basis of evidence. They're rejecting it on the basis of their worldview. They have a worldview that says dead people do not rise. Well, guess what? The disciples felt that way too. How did, what, were, what was the mentality of the disciples 
after Jesus died, before they saw him raised from the dead. Were the disciples sitting around, you know, between the crucifixion and the resurrection? Were the disciples sitting around going, hey, but just wait, he's coming back in just a few days? No! They didn't believe that! They believed, all their hopes were dashed, they were crushed. They believed that they had backed the wrong horse. And they believed that they they better get out of Jerusalem themselves before they ended up on a cross. They had no hope whatsoever that he was going to come out of that grave. And yet, we see these same guys who were utterly without hope after the crucifixion. Just weeks later, what are they doing? They're, They're preaching that that Jesus is risen, and they're giving their life for that. And in many cases, they were martyred for that. Would they, would they be willing to do that for what they knew to be a lie? There is only one thing that explains the, the existence of, of Christianity. There is only one thing that explains the rise of Christianity, the rise of the early church. There's only one thing that, 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 that would explain the utter transformation in the lives of the disciples, and that is the fact that Jesus really did rise from the dead. And, and see, that makes sense of Everything. If Jesus rose from the dead, it makes sense of, of everything that he did, of every claim that he made about himself. It makes sense of his identity as the Son of God. And that's where we're going next as chapter 12 begins. Let's look at chapter 12 and verses 1 through 9. It says that he began to speak to them in parables. A man rented a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another And him they killed, and so with many others. Some they beat, some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What? will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Now, unlike many of the parables that Jesus told, where he tells the parable and then he gives the explanation of the parable, he doesn't give an explanation for this. It's pretty clear. This is the story of the Old Testament. What had God done? God had sent prophet after prophet after prophet to the people. And what have they done to the prophets? Some they beat, some they killed. And now, God has sent His beloved Son. And what are they going to do to Jesus? Jesus knew what they were going to do to Him in just a few days. Jesus knew He was going to be killed and thrown out of the 
city to die. And Jesus also knew that, that, the, that the people were bringing God's judgment on themselves because of that. But you know what really stands out about this parable? It's not so much God's judgment, but God's amazing grace. When I, when I read this this week, you know, it's always good when you read the Bible, when you read a, a scripture, try to read it, even if you, you've read it many times, try to read, try to read it with fresh eyes. And just ask the Holy Spirit to give you uh, a fresh understanding. Um, and don't take for granted that you already understand it. Try to read it f- with fresh eyes each time. And, and this week as I studied this text, what leaped out at me was just the amazing grace of God. Because if, if I was the owner, I would, I would have never sent the second servant after they killed the first let alone my beloved son. I mean, the question here is, why didn't he get rid of these, 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 uh, these tenants sooner? <laughs> why did he wait this long? It's, it was just, it's the grace of God. It's God's amazing, scandalous grace that we see here. It's because of his character. You know, Psalm 103.8 says, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. And we see his, his grace and the fact that he is slow to anger um, and that he does abound in steadfast love. We see that in this parable. But listen, listen. There comes a point in time where if you say to God, I don't want you long enough, then God gives you what you want. And that's judgment. You know, the scripture that almost certainly was on the mind of Jesus when he told this parable was a passage from the Old Testament in the fifth chapter of Isaiah. Let's, let's look at that. Isaiah 5, 1 through 5, says this. And this almost certainly was on the mind of Jesus as he's telling this parable. I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could I have done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Now I will tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall, and it will be trampled. What, what scripture could be more relevant to us as Americans than this? Because just like ancient Israel, we have been given so many advantages. 
right? God talks here about a vineyard that, that had every advantage. I mean, it was on fertile soil. And he had put the choicest vines there and, you know, built the wine press and the tower. I mean, it had everything. And just like ancient Israel, I mean, we have been given so much. We have so many blessings in our country. I mean, we were, we're blessed to be a part of a country that has just incredible natural resources. Uh, we're, we're, we're blessed to be part of a country that, that enjoys just in, incredible wealth. And if you don't think that we in, enjoy wealth in our country... If you don't think that even people, even Americans that are not considered to be wealthy are wealthy compared to the rest of the world, then go travel some in the rest of the world. And what you'll see is that as Americans, to the, most of the world, we live in Disney World. Okay? And not only material riches, but we have been given so many spiritual riches in our country. So many churches so free access to the Bible, uh, to the gospel. I mean, it's, it's all around us. What are we doing with that? I mean, what, what kind of fruit are we producing? And we, we need to personalize that. I mean, if you're here today and, and you haven't given your life to Christ, listen, he's put you here today. And he's given you today even yet another opportunity to come to him. And if you are a Christian, then what are you doing with the resources, with the privileges, the spiritual privileges that you've been given? I mean, we need to, we need to ask that. And Jesus goes on in, in, in verse 10, and he says, Have you not read the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Now Jesus here is quoting from Psalm 118. It's the same song that they were singing the day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem. And the, the cornerstone was often a stone that did not fit anywhere else. And so they would, they would use it as a cornerstone or capstone. And see, Jesus knows that he doesn't fit their expectations of who they thought the Messiah was going to be. Jesus didn't fit their preconceived plans, but he fit the preconceived plans of God perfectly. And when Peter stands to preach in the days of the early church in Acts 4 and verses 11 and 12, he says this, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Are you rejecting this stone? Or are you building your life on the cornerstone? Now we see another encounter that Jesus has with the religious leaders in verses 13 and 14. They're going to send some of their best and brightest to trap him. 
And so we see here in verses 13 and 14, and they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. They're just dripping with hypocrisy here. And then they ask him, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Now, this is the ultimate hard serve coming in at Jesus because the religious leaders here think they've got him. This is like the ultimate trap. It's the ultimate no-win situation because if Jesus says, yes, pay the tax, then they think that's going to make him look bad in the eyes of the people because the people hated the tax, not only because they had to pay it, but because of what it symbolized. It symbolized that they were not free, that Rome was in charge, that they were under foreign domination, and they had to pay taxes to this foreign power. And so they hated this tax, and so they feel like, well, if Jesus says pay the tax then he's, he's gonna, it's going to look to the people like he's cuddling up to the Romans and he's going to lose the favor of the people. And if he says, don't pay the tax, then he's going to be subject to arrest by the Romans. I mean, this just looks like Jesus is totally hemmed in. <laughs> they don't know who they're dealing with. Okay, so there comes the 160 mile per hour serve, all right? Here comes Jesus' 320 mile per hour response to them because what does he say here verses 15 and following but knowing their hypocrisy he said to them why put me to the test bring me a denarius and let me look at it and they brought one and he said to them whose likeness and inscription is this they said to him caesar's jesus said to them render to caesar the things that are caesar's and to god the things that are God's. Um, another reason why they hated the tax is because of the, the money itself. It had the image, this image of Caesar on it. They didn't like carved images to begin with. But, I mean, this was the image of their foreign oppressor. There's the image of Tiberius Caesar right on the, on the front of this coin that Jesus is holding up. And what was even worse is that inscribed above Caesar's head's, head was the words, Augustus Tiberius, son of the divine Augustus. You see, they, the Romans were into emperor worship. And so this, this coin was basically proclaiming Tiberius Caesar to be the son of God. I mean, just think of the irony of that. Here's the real son of God holding up this coin that is proclaiming a two-bit tyrant to be the son of God. And Jesus says to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. What does he mean by that? Well, he's telling them to pay the tax, but he's doing it in a way that makes it very clear to the people 
that he is far from cuddling up to the Romans. In fact, basically what Jesus is saying here is, yeah, send this filthy stuff back where it belongs. Okay? And so his, his response here was brilliant. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. But then Jesus takes it further. He turns it around and goes on offense. And he says, render to God the things that are God's. Now let me tell you what that does not mean. It does not mean what many people think it means. Because many people think it means, well, you know what, I've got the secular part of my life, and then I've got the spiritual part of my life. And while I'm out there on my job or whatever in the secular part of my life, I'm going to play by the world's rules, and then... In the spiritual, the kind of church part of my life, I'm going to play by Christian rules. No. It doesn't mean that. Because what part of our life belongs to the Lord? All of it. All of it. Paul says in, in Romans 12 and verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies, in other words, the whole of yourself, as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. I love the way the, the, the message paraphrase puts Romans 12.1. It says this, so here's what I want you to do, God helping you. Take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. Why? Because he offered himself for you. Because he became a sacrifice for you. Because he was killed for you and rose for you that you might have life. And therefore, the only proper response to that is to offer all of our life as a living sacrifice for God's glory. So, Jesus here these encounters begin with this question about authority. Next, we see a question about resurrection. A question about resurrection. Verses 18 through 23. And Sadducees came to him who say there's no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child... The man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise, and the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Now, yet another group of religious leaders, the Sadducees, are coming with their hardest serve. And this particular group did not believe in the resurrection. And so they sort of posed this scenario. And it was the custom of the day that if a 
a, a man died and the couple did not yet have children, that it would be the obligation of the man's brother to marry the widow so that the family line could be preserved. Well, they say, in this case, you've got seven brothers and they all died, but they all were married to this same woman. So they asked the question in verse uh, 23, in the resurrection, which they didn't believe in, when they rise again, which they didn't think was going to happen, whose wife will she be? <laughs> and once again, they think they've got Jesus trapped. <laughs> here, comes the, here comes the 320 mile per hour surf uh, return back at them. Verses 24 and 25, Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you were wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God for when they rise from the dead they neither marry nor are given in marriage but are like angels in heaven now Jesus affirms a couple of things here first of all notice how strongly he affirms the resurrection he says here in verse 25 for when they rise Second, he says that those who rise knowing God are going to be like angels. Now, he does not say they are going to be angels. The Bible does not teach that human beings become angels. That's not what Jesus is saying. He, says, he does not say they will become angels. He says that we will be like angels in this respect. We will not marry or be given in marriage. You say, now, Pastor, does that mean that I'm not going to 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 know or uh, or know my loved ones uh, in heaven or in the new heavens and earth when Jesus comes again? It does not mean that. It doesn't mean that at all. In fact, not only are we going to recognize and know our saved loved ones we're going to be closer to them than ever because our relationships will will no longer be tainted by sin i mean it's going to be greater those the relationships are going to be greater than all we could ask or imagine but they're going to be transformed you say, but I want, to be, I want to be married to my spouse in heaven. You know why you say that? Because you can't imagine how wonderful this is going to be. You can't imagine. I mean, it, it is beyond all we can ask or imagine. Paul says, no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor has the heart of man imagined the things that God has prepared for those who love him. I mean, our finite minds are limited. That's why we think that way. That's the only reason we would say that is because we just can't imagine how wonderful this is going to, to be. And actually, there is going to be a marriage because who are we as the church? The bride of Christ, right? Those who know Jesus 
are all part of the bride of Christ, and Christ is the bridegroom. And we're going to have the only perfect spouse in the history of the universe. Okay, and we're going to spend eternity worshiping him, serving him in a perfect world, and we get to do that together with our saved loved ones. It's going to be beautiful. And now, once again, having answered their question, Jesus takes it further and goes on offense. What does he say here in verses 26 and 27? He says, and as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses and the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. You see, Jesus knew that this particular group, the Sadducees, only accepted the first five books of the Bible as authoritative. The Pentateuch, the books of Moses, that's all these guys accepted. And so, what does he do here? He goes back to one of those books, Exodus. And he says to these guys, you, you know the book of Exodus, you know about the burning bush? You know when Moses, the one that you revere... You remember when Moses encountered God at the burning bush? What did God say to him? God spoke to Moses and said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So wait a second. Those guys have been dead by that point for years. But God speaks of them in the present tense, right? He says, I'm not the God of the dead, but of the living, right? Jesus says to Martha in John 11:25 and 26, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the new life that we have in Christ because we have a risen Savior. We thank you for the, the picture of that that we've seen in baptism today and that we see in this text today. Thank you for dying for our sins Thank you for being raised so that we can have new life, abundant life, and, and eternal life. As we just continue to pray right now, you know what? That's the good news that's at the heart of Christianity. There is a Savior. He loves you. He died for your sins. He rose from the dead. And salvation is offered to each of us as a free gift. But you know what? It's like any, any gift. In order for the gift to become ours, we have to receive it. We have to respond to the good news of what Jesus has done. And the, the door to do that, the door to God's heart is open for you today. 
Jesus' body was broken and his blood was spilled for you. And he's conquered death and and the door to eternal life for you is now open. Why don't you walk through it? Walk through it today. Come to Christ. Turn from trying to do life your own way apart from him. And turn to Jesus. And believe in him. Trust him. Place your life in his hands. And receive the new life, the forgiveness of sins, the eternal life that Jesus offers to you. In just a moment, we're going to stand and sing. And if, if your desire is to give your life to Christ, why don't you let us know about that? It's going to be right here at the front. Just come and share with me what God is doing in your life. And we want to pray with you. And we want to help you to begin in a new beginning of walking with Christ. If you're here today and God's speaking to you about being a part of this church family, we'd love to welcome you. And we want to invite you to, to slip out as others stand. And we'd love to receive you. So, Father, we, we, we ask now that you would work and in every life and have your way in each each one of our hearts today. And we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin. But I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray, amen. You know, the Bible says this in John 1.12, To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth, is now your loving Father, and you are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with them. We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. I'd love to meet you and help you in your Christian journey. I would love to connect you to some other people who love the Lord and who would love you to come to one of our services. Be sure to speak to me before or after the service. Maybe you live outside our area. I'd love for you to write me. My email is pastor at fbcsuffolk.org. Tell me what God is doing in your life. If you have spiritual questions I can help you with, please let me know. 
we're on this journey together.